we are continuing our way through the Gospel of Luke. If you want to be making your way to Luke chapter 6, Luke chapter 6 will be in verses 37 to 42 this morning. And as we continue our way through, we've made our way to what may be the most quoted Bible verse in all of history. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Or maybe it flows a little better in KJV, right? Judge not, lest ye be judged. In a culture that declares, my truth is my truth, and and be your best self, this verse has become a, a mantra of sorts. Often scaled down to just the simple phrase, don't judge me. Right? And this isn't just a phrase of the world. We... We use this, the church uses this language too. Sometimes in, in funny ways as we reach for that third or fourth donut, right? Don't judge me. But then sometimes in more serious ways when something critical is said of us. It's a verse that's so often misunderstood. It's, it's so often wielded for justification for any and all actions that we do. It's laid down as a trump card that ends a conversation. Is that how Jesus intended this to be used, though? Is this what he was driving at when he said, judge not and you will not be judged? I'll lay the cards on the table. No, I don't think so. For starters, this verse has been turned to, don't judge me. That's the shortened form of it. But Jesus is not concerned about how others judge you, but about how you judge others. What others do is not our primary concern, and it wasn't Jesus' primary concern. Our biggest problem is not how others judge us, but how we judge others. So this verse is not a verse to defend ourselves with, it's a verse to evaluate ourselves with. And I think that becomes more clear when we read this passage in context. We have to remember that this is in the middle of a sermon that Jesus is giving to a great crowd of disciples with, with many others listening in. He's explaining to them what what characterizes his disciples, the the kind of disposition and heart a Christ follower ought to have. He just reminded the disciples that they are called to a love that looks different from the world's love. Anyone can love a person who loves them back. And Christians are called to that as well, but they're called to more. Followers of Jesus ought to love their enemies This is what differentiates them from sinners who don't follow Jesus. They are, we are, called to this kind of love because we've received this kind of love from God. We are to be merciful as God has been merciful to us. And now Jesus, continuing the same line of thinking that we just walked through last week, turns his attention to how his disciples make judgments of one another. So with that, let's let's read our text, Luke chapter 6. Verses 37 to 42. God says this. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, 
brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye. When you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. So we're going to walk through the text this morning. There's three points. We're going to see that we are called to judge, but we're called to judge differently than the world. Verses 37, 38, judge not like the world. In verses 39, 40, we'll see that we're called to judge, but not like the blind. And then in verses 41 and 42, we'll see that we're called to judge, but not like the hypocrite. So let's, let's look at the first point, judge not like the world, verses 37 and 38. Jesus gives two negatives and two positives here. The two negatives Jesus begins with are, are judge not and condemn not. This word judge here means to evaluate, to discern, to determine, to make a judgment call on. Which begs the question, is Jesus telling us not to discern good from evil or not to, to bring up sin with other people? I feel like that's always the first question we, we have to ask when we come to this passage. What is Jesus really driving at with this? And this is one of the times where we must take what we see here and what may not seem clear initially and interpret it in light of other passages that are clear. So we interpret the unclear in light of the clear in the rest of the Bible. And when we do that, when we take other passages together with this text, we come to an understanding where we must conclude that Jesus isn't forbidding Christians to discern what is good, good from evil, and he's not forbidding Christians to call out others on sin. This would be contrary to so many other places in Scripture. There are plenty of times we're called to make judgments concerning others. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul gives the instruction to the Corinthian church to set a brother outside of the church because of his sin. Matthew 18, we're given the instructions on what church discipline should look like. How should we confront one another on sin? How should we go about that process? 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 says, admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. We're given categories of people, idle, weak, faint-hearted, and we are to discern which category that person is in in their, in their stage of life and give the appropriate and corresponding response to them. Encouragement if they're faint-hearted, help if they're weak, admonishment if they're idle. We are to make a judgment there. Matthew 7, 15, and 16 tells us, beware of false prophets, and that we'll recognize them by their fruits. So we are, are to discern, to make a judgment about their teaching and what they're saying and how they're living, and discern whether or not they are speaking the truth or not. Even verses 41 and 42 of what we just read instructs us on how to judge others. Remove the log, then remove the speck from your brother's eye. So when Jesus says judge not, he's not really issuing a prohibition on judging others. He's issuing a serious warning to take great care in how we judge others. Jesus is concerned with our heart and how we judge. The, the sense of condemn not is that we are not to pass a final sentence on someone, as if we even could, right? This would be to play God. Rather than judge not than judging and condemning we're we're given two positive phrases that ought to mark a christ follower 
forgiveness and generosity. We ought to be quick to forgive and and charitable toward others in our estimation and judgments of them. And, And let me be clear, when the text says, you will not be judged, you will not be condemned, you will be forgiven, you will be given if you do these things. Jesus isn't advocating for some merits-based righteousness here. This isn't the prosperity gospel. Don't do these things, do these things, and you'll, you'll be good with the Lord. No judgment for you. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is applying a, a kingdom principle here. A forgiven person is marked by forgiving others. A person who has received the charitable mercy of God is marked by that same kind of mercy. A person who's been spared condemnation by a merciful God ought to extend that same kind of mercy toward others. He's applying a kingdom principle. This isn't about earning righteousness and getting earthly rewards. It is describing the heart of a citizen of Christ's kingdom. Followers of Jesus are not to have a judgmental, critical, fault-finding disposition. But we should be marked by forgiveness and generosity. Why? Well, because the one who has been forgiven much forgives much. The parable in Matthew 18 tells the story of of a servant who was forgiven an enormous debt. His master forgave him free and clear. And what did that servant go out and do? He went out and found a guy who owed him pennies compared to what he owed his master. And he said, hey, pay up. And then he threw him in jail. That servant didn't understand the forgiveness he had just received. He walked away having received such great forgiveness and then demanded of someone who owed him much less because he didn't understand what he had been forgiven. It revealed that this servant didn't truly grasp what forgiveness he had just been granted. The one who has been forgiven, who has received abundantly more than deserved, who has been the beneficiary of the charitable mercy of God, will exhibit the same kind of forgiveness and charitable judgments of of others, knowing full well what they have received. And this is what Jesus is driving home with an agricultural illustration in verse 38. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. The the picture here is, is grain being measured out. It's being pressed in to a measure. So picture a, a box or, or some sort of measuring tool that they would have had. It'd be pushed down into the box. Next, it would be, be shaken so that it would fill every possible corner of that box. And then not content with it just filling every possible corner, they would pile on a little bit more over the rim so that it'd be overflowing into the robes of the person's lap. It was to be generous in their measure, overflowing in their measure of generosity. I think this is to to picture the the generosity that we've received from God in Christ Jesus. You, if in Christ, have received far more abundantly than you deserve. And I know it's a broad question to ask, but but do you realize that? (laughs) Do you realize that you have received far more abundantly than you deserve in Christ Jesus? I think there's times where our measure is off with other people because we just don't understand what we've been forgiven. 
We don't understand the sinfulness of our sin and the holiness of our God. And so we, we take for granted forgiveness. Forgiveness is nice, but it's not jaw-dropping like it ought to be. Friends, before Christ, we were enemies of God, opposed to his ways. We committed treason against the high king. We tried to live our lives as if we were sitting on his throne. We lived as if we were holier, better, wiser than God. If we sinned against God in word, in thought, in action, and in inaction, every way, shape, and form, we did it. We racked up a debt so great that it wasn't just unlikely that we could earn our way back to God. It was impossible. We were incapable of doing it. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he had for us, sent his son Jesus and made us alive together with Christ even though we were dead in our sin. He raised him to life on the third day so that all who trust in him might know him and love him and enjoy him and live with him forever, declared forgiven, full and free. No condemnation left for those of us in Christ Jesus. Friends, that's the forgiveness that we've received. That's what we were. We were enemies opposed to him in every way possible, without hope apart from Christ. And God, in his great mercy, sent his son for us. That's the forgiveness we've been given and friends, that, that's the, the good news of the gospel that transforms how we evaluate and judge others. Friends, if, if you don't know this Christ, if you haven't heard this gospel before, let me plead with you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God today. Turn to him, place your hope in him. You cannot earn your way. You cannot earn your own righteousness. The good cannot outweigh the bad. Your measure will always be skewed in your favor. And that's not a good thing. You need the righteousness that comes through Christ and Christ alone. And Christians, let me remind you that, that we ought to be the most forgiving and most charitable people in all the world, given what we've, been, give, given what we've received in Christ Jesus. And I think this is Jesus' point. His followers should be marked by a heart that is quick to forgive, quick to be generous in their judgments of others, not to condemn and find fault. The, uh, a Christian's disposition should be one of mercy, just as our Father is merciful. Our whole heart and disposition towards others should be marked by what we've received in Christ, should be noticeable. We're called to judge not like the world. But how do we know if we've crossed the line from, from good judgment into what we could call judgmentalism? Like, how do we know when we've crossed that line? I, I love one explanation given by writer Ken Sandy. He says, we cross the line when we begin to sinfully judge others, which is characterized by a feeling of superiority, indignation, condemnation, bitterness, or resentment. Sinful judging often involves speculating on others' motives. Most of all, it reveals the absence of genuine love and concern toward them. 
when these attitudes are present, our judging has crossed the line and we are playing God. So friends, let me ask, are you a fault finder? Is that your natural tendency? Do you have a a critical spirit and see the, the worst of people and the worst of a situation? Do you spend your time speculating on others' motives? That's so easy to do, isn't it? That's so easy to do. She's just doing that to get attention. All he cares about is money. That's why he's that's why he's doing that. We do it all the time in just subtle ways where we just apply motives to people's actions. Maybe we're right sometimes, but many times they're just our sinful speculations of others' motives. And judgmentalism shows up in all, all shapes and sizes, right? Parents can make quick judgments when they're at Kroger and they see someone else's kid acting up. He's about to call that a log in a second, uh, friends. Right? We make judgments all the time. People really into fitness can feel a sense of superiority to those in the McDonald's drive-thru. And those in the McDonald's drive-thru seeing people walk into the gym are like, oh, they just care about their appearance too much. Right? We do it all the time in subtle ways. We're even really good at masking judgmentalism with a veil of humor, aren't we? I was just joking. That's the refrain of my judgmental heart that loves getting a laugh more than loving the person in front of me. Friends, this text calls us to evaluate our hearts, to ask if we are loving others in Christ-like ways or if we're simply judging others like the rest of the world does. And, And if you recognize this sort of judgmentalism in yourself, if the Spirit's convicting, keep, keep digging to the heart, to the, the root of why you're critical. Verses 43 to 45, as we'll, we'll get to next week, says, for the, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Judgmentalism is a, a heart problem. Maybe your heart's full of pride, thinking that we're, we're better than others. And when we do that, we, we set ourselves up as, as judges and begin to just catalog the failings and condemn, condemn others' actions. Maybe your, your heart's full of, of insecurity. Right? When, when we lack confidence in our own beliefs and positions, we conclude that the best defense is a good offense because we don't want anyone poking holes in where we stand. And so we lash out at others' views and and just judge them before they can judge us. Maybe your heart's full of prejudice. When we have preconceived, unfavorable opinions about others simply because of their race, religion, gender, status in life, political affiliation. When we do that, we'll consistently seek to validate our own views by interpreting their beliefs and actions negatively no matter what, without conversation. Friends, there can be a lot of reasons, a lot of heart reasons why why we have judgment in our hearts towards others. But whatever it is, let me remind you, Christian, you have all the resources you need in Christ Jesus, in his spirit and in his word, to turn from those sinful ways and walk in faithfulness. We're not resigned to just be a critical person or a cynical person. That's not our identity. We're not bound to that way of living for the rest of our lives because that's just who I am. 
That's just how I'm wired. No, we are being conformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And by his spirit and through his word, we have all we need to live in Christ-like ways. So don't be discouraged. Another way we can easily have a, a judgmental and critical spirit is by following poor guides who model that sort of life for us. And I think that's Jesus' second point here. Verses 39 and 40, judge not like the blind. So Jesus continues by offering an illustration. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? Jesus is not flippantly using the blind as an illustration. He, he doesn't offer it to put down those who are unable to see. He's using this illustration to make his point clear. In, in fact, blindness is used as an illustration many times in the gospel. And, and the question it begs is, who are the blind ones here? Right Throughout the Gospel of Mark, there's a, a theme of those with physical sight not seeing clearly who Jesus is, and those who are blind rightly seeing who Jesus is. No story better illustrates this than that of Bartimaeus in, in Mark chapter 10. Jesus is, is leaving Jericho, walking down the road. There's a, a great crowd following all around him. And Bartimaeus is sitting alongside of the road, and he hears through the commotion that it's, it's Jesus who's walking down the street in front of him. So Bartimaeus, who can't see, just begins crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Some in the crowd who are, who are following Jesus quickly turn to him and rebuke him, say, stop it, stop yelling. Bartimaeus, convinced that crying out to Jesus is more important, continues and cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stops and calls him over, despite some of the crowd's dismay. And he heals him and says, today your faith has made you well. And blind Bartimaeus is no longer known as blind Bartimaeus because he regained his sight and then followed Jesus. See, there, there were those in that crowd who could physically see Jesus, but who didn't know who he was rightly. But Bartimaeus, who couldn't physically see Jesus, rightly saw who was walking down that street that day. The eyes of his heart were opened, and he saw Jesus for who he truly was. And so, so Jesus uses this illustration here to make the point that if you follow a guy that is blind to their own sin, blind to the true identity of Jesus, blind to their own flaws and faults, then you will inevitably end up in the same pit as them. And, and make no mistake, this is all of us apart from Christ. We are blind to our own blindness. Paul Tripp uses that phrase a lot. We're blind to our own blindness. And it reminds me of time when my, my grandma went to the, the DMV to renew her license. And I think I've shared this before, but it's funny. So let's share it again. She had to go and she had to do the eye test. And so she, she went and the sweet DMV worker was so patient. Uh, my grandma looked in there and she says, read the left side. And my grandma goes, there is no left side uh, to, to these letters. And she's like, okay, uh, well, let me, you know, she like nicely taps on the computer again to, to reset it. She says, okay, look again. My grandma looks again. Yep, still no left side. Your machine's broken. Okay, well, let's move to this machine. 
Turns out that one was broken too, uh, according to my grandma. And she insisted through three different machines that all of them were broken, uh, that there was no left side to be seen in these machines. My grandma was, was quite literally blind to her own blindness. She had a cataract in her eye and had no idea. And so she was insisting that her point of view was correct because she was just completely blind to her own blindness. And this is what Jesus is getting at here. He uses this same proverbial illustration in Matthew 15, 14, applies it to the Pharisees, who he may have had in mind here as well. The Pharisees have shown time and time again that they think they see rightly. They think they know best. They think they're superior to the lowly sinners and tax collectors. Luke 18, 9 to 14 illustrates this well. Jesus tells this parable to, to some who trusted in themselves that were righteous and treated others with contempt. It says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is warning his disciples that if you follow a blind guide, someone who, who doesn't see their own sin, you will very quickly become like that person in their self-righteous and critical judgments of others. He goes on to say that, that a disciple is not above his teacher. It, it was common in Jesus' day for disciples to find a rabbi that they wanted to emulate, to follow him. And the goal was to become like him, to learn what he knows, learn from his ways, grow under his instruction. But it's arrogant and self-righteous to think that a disciple will surpass the teacher or is better than the teacher. No, a, a disciple will become like his teacher, which is why it matters so much who our teacher is. Jesus is certainly more than just a good teacher, but he's not less than that. He, he's the teacher that we ought to follow, the teacher whom we're being shaped in the likeness of, the teacher of who the Holy Spirit is conforming us into the image of. He is the one who we must listen to, the one we must sit under, the one we must follow. Friends, if we were to just evaluate what you listen to the most or, or who gets the most hours and attention of your time, who would that be? Who has the most time informing the way that you make judgments? Is it Jesus? Or does Instagram or CNN or Fox or Joe Rogan get your ear more often? You see, we're, we're learning to make judgments on the world from those that you watch, listen to, read. They're teaching you how to judge the world through the way they judge. You are being shaped and formed by the content that you consume, by the teaching you listen to. 
by the shows you watch. Friends, this is discipleship. Do the people and influencers you spend time listening to point you and encourage you to be more merciful, more forgiving, more charitable in your interactions with others? Who we follow matters. Is our life marked by following the ways of Jesus? Or do we look more like other people that aren't imitating Christ? Are we imitating others who are seeking to imitate Christ, as Paul so often encouraged? And and let me just point out one local church application here. This is why there are qualifications for elders, and one reason why membership matters in the local church. Members have the responsibility of recognizing and affirming elders within the church. This is no light task. If you If the men you appoint as pastors are not imitating Christ, then trouble is ahead. You have a blind guide. So as application of this text, let me encourage all of you who are members, when elder candidates are announced, take that seriously. Ask questions. Get to know them. Because you and your family will be following their lead, for better or for worse. If their lead is not Christ-likeness, that will impact and shape you. And this isn't to say elders are, are perfect, far, far from it. But they regularly model confession and repentance and are genuinely seeking to imitate Christ. Who we follow matters. It shapes the way we view the world, the way we make judgments of others. And, and I mean, let's look at this last year. I think we saw this. Isolation led to more time than ever to just consume media without the balancing effect of having conversation with other people. We formed judgments of others in the world around us based on the media we consumed. And we didn't have the sharpening effect of conversation with others. It led to so much division and strife. So many people followed blind guides, people who don't have spiritual eyes to see or discern true right and wrong according to Scripture. Friends, we saw the effects of following poor guides. Honestly, our world around us is reeling from it. And one of the ways that we can be a compelling community to the world around us is by being distinctly different in who we follow. Who you follow matters. Discipleship matters. We are discipled in how to think, feel, and act by those around us all the time. So we have to evaluate. Are we judging just like the blind guides we were following? We're called to judge, but not judge like the blind. Jesus turns his attention finally to how then do we judge? What does that look like? Our third point, judge not like the hypocrite. Judge not like the hypocrite. Jesus gives the disciples really a a funny visual here. right? You you can picture it. A guy with just a, a massive log jutting out from his eye, leaning forward to his friend who has a tiny speck in his eye trying to remove it. Like It's meant to be ridiculous and, and a bit comical. It's meant to show the foolishness 
of our sin and of our self-righteousness. He's using language here to, to help us see just the, how ridiculous sin makes us look sometimes. He's giving us a, a word picture of what a hypocrite is. Someone who is self-righteous and sees the fault of others without recognizing their own glaring faults. Notice what Jesus is doing here, though. Again, he's not saying, don't help your brother remove the speck from his eye. He's simply instructing his disciples to first be suspicious of their own hearts. First evaluate their own lives. See first if there's any fault in them before addressing your brother or sister's sin. He doesn't say don't address sin. We must. Jesus just insists that we address sin first in ourselves and then in our brothers, lest we be hypocritical and self-righteous. One author said, self-righteousness is a, a sense of moral superiority that appoints us as prosecutor of other people's sinfulness. We relate to others as if we are incapable of the sins they commit. Self-righteousness wages war against mercy. And we see this played out all the time, don't we? See it played out in marriages where husband and wife become each other's biggest and quickest critic. Always ready to point the finger. We see it in siblings, right? Always quick to throw the brother or sister under the judgment bus. And back it over a few times. All of us utter phrases like, I've got a right to be angry. Or I wouldn't have responded that, that way if they didn't do this first. <laughs> Justifying our own sinful responses. Only seeing their sin and not our own. And it's something that happens at every stage of life, too. I'm not old, or at least I don't like to think of myself as old, but... It gets easier even every year to be more judgmental of those younger than you. We, we come down harder on them because we've kind of moved past it ourselves, and so it's easier to see the flaws in what they're doing. To look down and be like, oh, man, what do you mean you're busy? You don't even know what busy is yet. Right? We all we make judgments like that on younger generations because we've moved past it in our minds. We think the younger generation is lazy or, or no respect. Maybe some of it's true, but is your grumbling motivated out of a love and concern for them? Are you approaching them in love? Or are you just sitting back and judging them? Friends, when self-righteousness creeps in, we need a good dose of humility. We need to examine our hearts. We need to check for lumber in our own eyes before we examine our brothers and sisters. This is for our good, but it's also for the good of the church family. Pastor Dave Harvey writes, Dealing with our own sin helps us see clearly. Removing my sin grants me the perspective needed to address others' sin." We'll never be able to see 2020 in this life, but cutting away my own log lets me see through the lens of compassion and care rather than the searing eyes of judgment and self-righteousness. And our own personal lumber work prepares us to serve those around us. 
Self-examination alone cannot produce good relationships, but only self-examination can provide the clarity of sight needed to serve others well. My own logging efforts position me for speck removal. This sort of lumberyard mentality amongst a family of believers cultivates a beautiful rhythm of of humble self-examination, fighting sin as we see it, and being humble enough to receive admonishment and correction and be pointed, have sin pointed out in your own life and point out sin in others' life so that we all grow together in Christ-likeness. The Christian life is a lot like working at a lumberyard, which is not an example I've thought of for the Christian life before, but I think it's true. It creates a, a culture of, of discipleship and counseling and encouragement where the whole family grows in Christ-likeness together as we are doing personal logging and speck removal. Jesus is laying out for us in this text a picture of what it looks like to be a follower of him. We are to be marked by forgiveness and charity, not to just assume the worst of others, We are to look to Christ as our teacher and not blindly follow a critical, cynical guide. We're to humbly examine ourselves, to do personal logging before we rightfully judge others. I love what John Newton, an 18th century pastor, wrote. He wrote a letter titled, On Controversy, How to Deal with Others. (laughs) And I think he summarizes so well what we've talked about in this text this morning. And so we'll we'll close with this. He addresses first when you have confrontation with an unconverted person, and second when you have confrontation with a fellow believer. And here's here's what he says. It's on the screen. I encourage you to follow along. If you look upon the one who you wish to confront as an unconverted person in a state of enmity against God and his grace... A supposition which, without good evidence, you should be very unwilling to admit. He is, more proper, he is a more proper object of your compassion than your anger. Alas, he knows not what he does. But you know who has made you to differ. If God, in his sovereign pleasure, had so appointed, you might have been as he is now. And he, instead of you, might have been set for the defense of the gospel. You are both equally blind by nature. If you attend to this, you will not reproach him or hate him, because the Lord has been pleased to open your eyes and not his. If you account him a believer, though greatly mistaken in the subject of debate between you, deal gently with him. The Lord loves him and bears with him. Therefore, you must not despise him or treat him harshly. The Lord bears with you likewise, and expects that you should show tenderness to others from a sense of the much forgiveness you need yourself. In a little while, you will meet in heaven. He will then be dearer to you than the nearest friend you have upon earth is to you now. Anticipate that period in your thoughts. And though you may find it necessary to oppose his errors, View him personally as a kindred soul with whom you are to be happy in Christ forever. May we deal with each other in this way, church. 
Let's pray.